0: My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary,
1: Uh, very headstrong, forceful. One of those kind of words.
0: You only get one word.
1: (laughs) Headstrong, I would say.
0: Welcome to Our Mothers, Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host.
1: Like you. tell me, tell me, know you
0: know. Marsha Emanuel is a nice Jewish girl from Chicago. She married a handsome doctor who immigrated from Israel, and they had three sons, Zeke, Rahm and Ari. It was the perfect setup to live out the American dream in the 1960s. But that isn't who Marcia Emanuel was. She wasn't the kind of mom who took her kids out to a Saturday matinee. She took them to civil rights marches, and she raised her boys to have minds of their own. Marcia's 86 now, and each of her boys went on to high profile lives. Ari is arguably the most famous agent in Hollywood. Rahm was President Obama's chief of staff and mayor of Chicago. And Zeke is an internationally renowned physician and health policy expert. Zeke has written a lot of health policy books. The title of the newest one just out this week is Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? But the book of Zeke's that I'm most interested in is his memoir, The Brothers Emmanuel*. I read it recently thinking it would be about the three brothers, and it is. But really, it's about Marsha. So I invited Zeke to talk to me about what it was like to have her as a mother. Zeke, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about your mom. Yeah. Well, and then you say thanks for having me.
1: Oh, I didn't know you were actually doing this. Now, I thought that's what you were. You were just telling me that's what you're doing. It's a pleasure, and I'm sure my mom would be happy. I'm sitting in my closet because that's the best sound. You get the best sound that way.
0: So I started this podcast um, actually around Mother's Day because I was so depressed by all the grimness out there, which has gotten only grimmer. And I was talking to my husband, who whom you know, and we were talking about, You know, potential people I should uh, be talking to. And he said, you know, you should really talk to Zeke because any mother who would raise three super successful, interesting, completely out there kids must have been pretty incredible. So here's my first question to you right off the bat. He said, incredible. What is the one word you would use to describe your mother?
1: Uh, Very headstrong, forceful. One of those kind of words.
0: You only get one word.
1: <laughs> Headstrong, I would say.
0: Headstrong. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. I, I I remember when your book came out because we shared an editor, Susan Camel.
1: Yeah. The late Susan Camel, unfortunately. The best editor in the business.
0: Yeah. And I did my memoir with her. And then she, at the same time, you were doing yours. And I thought, oh, that sounds... Interesting. I'll probably never read it. And then I started reading it um, about a week ago and it's it's so well done.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
0: And uh, I was worried that there wouldn't be enough about your mom in there. And it there's so much about her that
1: it's only about my mom.
0: It's, I know it's practically only about your mother, right? Yeah. It's like a letter to my mother. <laughs> So let's start at the beginning and go pretty chronologically. So she was born Marsha Smolowitz. Yeah, 1933.
1: 1933
0: in Chicago. Depression era baby and her her dad Herman, who was born in 1902 in Poland, is that right? Yeah. And her mother?
1: Yeah, I don't know when her mother was born actually.
0: And what was her mother's name? Sophie. Sophie. Yeah. And they were both from Poland.
1: No, Sophie wasn't from Poland. She was brought to Chicago by a uh, small-time Jewish uh, uh, mobster. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, what struck me when I was reading about your mother's early life was her relationship with her father. What was the nickname?
1: Big... Big Banga. Yes. He He's a very, he's about six feet and very uh, robust, strong guy. His hands were literally like the old time baseball mitts. His whole hand was a baseball mitt.
0: <laughs> and you, at one point, I think you said they were like, his fingers were like Polish sausages.
1: Yeah, they were just huge.
0: <laughs> From what you've written, she had a tough relationship with her dad and had trouble um, standing up to him. And a lot of this was around her education. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, so my mom was born in the Depression, and uh, she was the third child. It turned out the middle. Two daughters above her, uh, Aunt Shirley and uh, uh, Aunt Esty, um, and then two sons below her. And so she got stuck in the middle. And so she could not go to college because the money was being saved for her brother. Um, and so she ended up becoming a, uh, a you know, radiation, a a radiology technician, basically doing x-rays in the, you know, uh, 1950s.
0: And she was bitter about the fact that she didn't go beyond high school?
1: Yeah, I think my mom is a very intelligent, uh, talented woman. And I think uh, she got raised in an era first that not that many women, except women from the upper class, went to college. And she wasn't from the upper class. She was a, you know, working class, uh, the daughter of a working class person who was sometimes unemployed, never uh, uh, higher than, you know, a a laborer or a worker. He was uh, never got into the capitalist class. Um, So uh, I think there was never quite enough money. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I think. In another era or born in another family, uh, she would have gone to some of the finest colleges. I mean, she's an, you know, things I remember about my mother when we were growing up, avid reader. So she would just, you know, vacuum in books and consume them. And, you know, she was, you know.
0: Of course, um, she had you boys, raised you boys. And at one point in your book, you said she considered that her career, her calling was to raise the three of you.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in our, our lingo, she 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 was a homemaker, except my mom was way more than a homemaker because raising us was not like it totally consumed her. It was, yes, her main activity. But, you know, she was committed to um, lots of other civic improvement things uh, like the civil rights movement, like right. trying to improve local schools, like the anti-war movement. Right. So we we were definitely, you know, I would call it center stage, but we were hardly the only people on stage.
0: Right. So let's talk about the civil rights movement. And uh, and I'm going to have you um, read this little section. And if you could put it into context, sort of what it is that that this is leading up to.
1: Well, I I mean, my mom was very heavily involved in the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. in the early night, very early 1960s. We had a lot of uh, 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 African-American friends. We had a lot of African-American people to the house because she was organizing demonstrations. Uh, And so the planning committees would come to our house and they were a mixture of whites and African-Americans. You know, as kids, we had African-American friends, highly unusual in the early to mid-60s. We would play with uh, Michael Dean and Clifton Dean. We would go to our housekeepers, Uh, house on the west side and play there.
0: Mrs. Henry?
1: Vern Henry. Yes, Vern Henry. Um, I I was just fondly remembering Vern Henry. I know this is a distraction, but Mm -hmm. uh, Vern taught uh, us kids how to iron and how to take um, satisfaction out of the ironing process. She would set up the iron at an angle so you could watch the TV while you were ironing. And she taught us how to do that and to this day I find it one of the most relaxing calming uh, activities and it's um, you know when I'm talking on a phone call and do you know not a zoom call but just a phone call I frequently will iron it keeps me suitably focused on on the the call but also accomplishing uh, the ironing so I, I find it one of the rare Zen moments that I have in my life because I'm not a very Zen person but Vern Henry made made ironing Zen for me. Anyway, my mother, my mother was heavily engaged very, very early on and, um, you know, infused that engagement with us. And I remember people, you know, because every so often they would get arrested. People would be practicing how to make their bodies limp or how to get into a fetal uh, position to protect their head, um, in our, uh living room, so.
0: And make their bodies limp, so it's harder to.
1: Arrest them and put them in the paddy wagons.
0: Mm -hmm. And you watched this as little
1: kids. Yeah, we often, yeah, we often engaged in the activity.
0: Your mother was very involved in this. She actually would take you to protests, right?
1: Yes, we went to many, many protests. Civil rights and and uh, anti Vietnam War protests.
0: Okay, so with that context, why don't you uh, read this little section I picked out for you?
1: Okay, from all appearances, my mother was just another homemaker schlepping her kids to a museum or a department store. Many times, we actually went to those kind of places. But on other occasions, we went to the Board of Education on Clark Street in Chicago to join picket lines or to Southside schools where black parents lay down in the street to block the delivery of temporary classrooms. Called Willis wagons, after the superintendent of the city schools, Benjamin Willis, these trailers made it possible for school systems to expand classrooms at black schools, maintaining segregation as Chicago's black population grew and hundreds of thousands of whites moved to the suburbs. They were both the symbol and the instruments of the city's racism. My mother wasn't, as she says, a lie down in the street kind of person. As a mother, she recalls, I had to make sure I wasn't arrested because I had children to worry about. And believe it or not, I also had in my mind the idea that I had to get home to make your father dinner. After she had put in an hour or so at one of these protests, my mother made sure we caught the Chicago Transit Authority bus home in time for her to make dinner and get us kids into bed. More than once, we were to turn home with the same bus driver who had dropped us off. He'd greet my mother with some benign remark, had a nice time shopping, and she would smile as if that's what exa- that's were exactly what she had been doing. <laughs> I mean, this is only upon rereading this, I said, uh, "My my mom. Maybe mostly made sure she wasn't arrested, but sometimes she did get, end up getting arrested and, and having to be bailed out.
0: You remember this.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, as a young kid, it's a little uh, scary, I would say, that your mom's in, in the jail and, you know, you don't know why and you don't know when she's coming home.
0: All of this against the backdrop of being your mother. Yeah. Let's not forget. And one thing that you said uh, you wrote early in the book is that um, every night you got, and I love this, you got nightly time alone with her, Yeah. either talking or reading, about 10 or 15 minutes, because her philosophy was every child should feel like he's as special as an only child.
1: Well, so we would have a sort of a collective lay on the parents' bed reading time, so we'd get a book. And it would be read collectively. And then each of us would have time before we had to uh, all get it, go go to bed. Um, And so that was the sort of process.
0: And here you were, three hyperactive, hyper smart. um...
1: No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Emanuel boys were um, late bloomers. And I think this is one of those uh, common misperceptions that you know, because we're successful now in our 50s and 60s, um, that, you know, we must have been successful as young kids. That is patently false. But um, there is that
0: one kid who you couldn't keep; You were always second and he was always first.
1: Spencer yeah. Waller. Uh, don't worry. I'll go to my deathbed, never forgetting Spencer Waller. Uh, uh, you know, I was the most successful at schools and academics of kids, but um, uh, we were never the top of the class. Um, I was never, you know, I was good at athletics, but not great. Ram was, you know, in the middling of the class and Ari had severe dyslexia. So he was always in special classes. Um, and Ari was a very good athlete, um, uh, but not, so I, I, again, we, we, we did, I did, You know, the best I did was, you know, I was in the top of the class graduating high school, but we were not, I mean, people did not walk around. Oh, no, those are manual boys. They're just stand out. They're going to really succeed. We're going to read about them in the newspapers when they grow up. That was not, absolutely not. No one, no one, I can guarantee you, absolutely no one said that.
0: But enough about you. What did your mom think of you? (laughs) <laughs> your mother might have thought something else because the three of you shared a room, and you had a you had a study. That a, a room that could have been a bedroom was your study for the three of you, right?
1: Yeah. She, so so yeah yeah we had we had a a nice a uh, first floor apartment that we eventually moved to um, when I was in uh, first grade, and she cr- created. She put all three of us in one bedroom and then she created an office where each of us had a desk where we did our homework, whatever that was, Uh, uh, you know, and and we definitely thought that was, you know, very important. My dad had a a separate alcove. It wasn't really a room, an alcove where he had his desk and his stereo where he did his work.
0: So your mom, she kept her cool most of the time. Uh, Sometimes she didn't, and she would go into these, and and I have to tell you that my late husband was one of four boys, and I grew up, we all grew up together in Amherst, and I'd see these four boys just running her ragged, and I said to him once, how does she do it? And he said, well, she cries a lot. So you have this uh, scene in the book, well, sort of a passage where, um, so your mom would get very upset. Yeah. Sometimes. And uh, she'd either say, I, I love this. She'd either say, I hate you all equally, <laughs> or go into kind of a silent retreat mode. Yeah. And just there would be days of silence. Yeah. And just the three of you would sit in your, your room and try to figure out well, what can we do yep. <laughs> to make to get back yes. in our good graces.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think one of the advantage again, one of the advantages that my parents did is they they had us three sleep in the same bedroom and we became very very close. And this kind of plotting was, you know, important to who we are too.
0: What I love is this one thing that your mom said to you years later which was because you guys were you you were you had a lot of energy, you fought a lot among yourselves and she said, you know, for every time you see me lose it, there are a hundred times more that I've actually held it together.
1: Yes, I, I I I know that to be the case, having now been a parent, but I will say my mother, uh, before we moved to the apartment uh, when I was in first grade, the, the, the apartment before that, we were on the second floor and literally got thrown out of the building because the three of us, were so just wild. I mean, we we were just constant bundles of energy running around the house as if it were a playground. Um, And that's what my mom had to put up with. And, you know, uh, I don't envy having been a parent. I I don't envy her. And I don't think people understand how intense as boys we really were. It's very hard. Um, And down the block were three other boys our exact age and and we would play with them to the glass kids. So, yeah.
0: And she gave you, and she also had a lot of trust in you. There you were in Chicago. She basically let you guys run all over the city.
1: Yeah, I think she, she, she was the, she was the antithesis as I say in the book of the helicopter parent. Um, she, she instilled good values in us. She instilled a sense of, how to take public transportation and how to be safe. Um, And she thought that we would, you know, be have enough common sense and smarts not to get into too much trouble, trouble. She was sure we would get into. But as long as it wasn't criminal or or too much trouble, you know, we did we we lived in a, a not not a genteel. I mean, before we moved to the suburbs, we did not live in a genteel part of town. It was rough and tumble. And, uh, you know, there were fights in the in the uh, alley and fights at the beaches. Um, so, you know, we we knew how to defend ourselves and we were willing to take punches and give punches.
0: And not just that, you're she was not and your dad, too. They didn't say, boys, you should not be fighting. Your mom was a a real, a true pacifist. She didn't let you have toy guns, not even squirt guns, Um, even though, you know, what they say about boys is that they can carve a a gun out of a piece of toast.
1: Exactly. Uh, A lot of your fingers.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) But she, your parents didn't say to you, fighting is wrong because you were in a, as you say, a rough and tumble place.
1: Yeah, and there were also important things that you had to stand up for. Uh, we had to stand up for what was right. And so
0: so uh, back uh, a little bit to the um, the civil rights movement, you uh, there's a, a, a description in your book about um, the Martin Luther King. March it was in, in 1966 and your mother took you
1: Well what I remember of that march is that there were uh it was a contentious march through a white neighborhood and um you know not unusual in these civil rights marches we were uh we weren't the only whites but there were, it was predominantly African American and we were Um, whites in it. And um, I remember that, you know, we had to hold hands and be together um, and we were given strict instructions just to keep marching and, you know, uh, don't get into any fights. That was for sure. Um, And, uh, you know, we were uh, lots of things were thrown at us. Uh, You know, I remember the Rotten Tomatoes in particular. And uh, then we went to an auditorium where we heard uh, Reverend King uh, give a give an address. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a uh, uh, one of the more searing, frightening moments. Um, I think uh, I think I was eight years old, which would have made Ram six and Ari four. Ari might have been five at that time. So
0: does Ari have any memory of it?
1: No, I don't think Ari has any memory.
0: You know, one of the criticisms of the civil rights movement. Is that you know? After we passed the Voting Rights Act, people thought we were done. Like white people declared victory prematurely and basically walked away. Does do you think your mom today? How old is she now?
1: My mom, eighty six.
0: And does, do you talk to her about this? Uh, did does she think that we stopped too soon? Um, how has she?
1: Well, I think it was it, it was a complicated moment. I mean, remember in sixty eight there was this big there were you know, two or three shifts that happened. One shift was Dr. King became anti-Vietnam War and that put him in tension with the uh, Democratic Party and and Lyndon Johnson's leadership. Um, And that was a, a, you know, created serious problem to getting additional legislation. Uh, There was also, the recognition that it, this wasn't just about voting rights, but there was also economic issues that had to be addressed because of, uh, you know, historic injustices and redlining and a series of other problems, you know, Social Security never extending to domestic workers to, uh, you know, uh, maintain the, the kind of racism uh, that Southern Democrats would uh, accept in exchange for voting for. the the social security legislation. So, you know, Dr. King moved to Chicago to highlight the uh, in 68 to highlight the uh, um, these socioeconomic issues. And I think that became a problem for a lot of um, uh, American whites, uh, in addition to the passage of the of the, uh, you know, education, uh, uh, the 65 Voting Rights Act. So, you know, it it it. And then there was also, you know, this issue of, you know, are we for whites? Are we not for including whites became a a, a major tension within a lot of civil rights organizations. I think, you know, in what is now 50 year hindsight, it's clear that uh, uh, Martin Luther King was, you know, ahead of his time. Uh, and it's also clear that socioeconomics, you couldn't just get voting rights. You needed to have uh, a measure of socioeconomic justice uh, in this country, too. Um, And now we're living through, (laughs) 50 years later, we're literally living through uh, the consequences of not having addressed this in the in the 1960s. Um, As
0: a little boy, you must have thought, well, this is what all little kids do is they go with their mom on the bus to protests.
1: Well, no, I would say we did know we were different in part because we knew we were the only whites at these protests in part because we were called nigger lovers and, uh, uh Um, so I, you know, we did know that this wasn't normal. We didn't know how unnormal it was. And I don't think it dawned on us that, you know, somehow this was, this was, you know, we were two standard deviations off the mainstream in America, um, that, You 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 have a small reference circle which norms things. And, you know, we were norming and and told, you know, this is what, you know, good people do. Um, So that's what we assumed.
0: So one of the parts of your book that hit me the hardest was when your dad announced one day, I've put down a down payment on it. I've bought it, basically bought a house in the suburbs, which they had been fighting about for years. And She said, oh, why didn't you just buy two, meaning one for you and one for me, since I won't be living with you anymore. Right. Uh, And I I don't know why that hit me so hard. But
1: well, because I think it's a clash of, you know, my dad had a certain thing he had to do to achieve his internal ideal. My mom had a cla- had a certain internal ideal for her life, and this was a fundamental clash between the two of them that I don't think there was any pretty way of resolving. And my dad, I think, used force uh, to resolve it to his his way, which is, look, my dad is an immigrant, classic immigrant. He comes to the United States. He's got an MD, but he's got, you know less, uh, I don't know what it is, 23, $26 in his pocket. He's got to um, and move it uh, forward. And so that that's the way she, teen as a intern first in Cincinnati and then in Chicago um, to become a respected doctor and enter the American middle class and uh, realizing his goal, the house in the suburbs and a car, right?
0: And your mom,
1: and then my mom um, is this person who, you know, the culmination of her goal is civic and political activism and trying to change society. That's her goal, and so she's doing that in Chicago. And he's got to, I got, you know, to realize his life dream. He's got to go to the suburbs and get his suburban house. And that—that's the conflict.
0: And you said that was the biggest fight you ever saw them have was over this move.
1: Yes, my parents were not shy about, you know letting us see their disagreements. Mm-hmm. But this was definitely the biggest. And and I think the, the most traumatic to the to the family. For a little kid at that time, um, uh, I was uh, 10 years old, I guess. You know, I could go all over the city. I could use public transportation. I could get on the 151 or the 156 bus and go downtown. I could get on the L and go downtown. And I did a lot. Right. I, I love the Chicago Public Library, the main Chicago Public Library, downtown on Washington and Michigan Avenue and you know you could go in there into the kids' room and read and take out a bunch of books go home read them and, and bring them back and then we moved to the suburbs and you can't get anywhere you have to drive there is no when we moved to the to the suburbs there was a still a farm about half a mile from our house and there was no public transportation no bus and the only sub the only train was about three miles away. Um, so, you know, your, your freedom was mom driving you, or you had a bike in the summer and you could ride around, but it, it was, you know, for most people thinking moving to the suburbs while liberating for me, for our family, it was constraining. And by the way, my mom did not know how to drive a car until we moved to the suburb uh, and she had to learn. And she was, you know, she now claims she was the safest driver ever, but she was a terrible driver early on.
0: So not only was it it was her dream of um uh the activism and being a you know the Chicago dweller who she knew herself to be but the other dream that this seemed to close the lid on was returning to Israel permanently is that right Yep and Israel meant a lot to her
1: Uh so my you know uh before I was born my parents moved to Israel um and I was born in Israel soon after they arrived, and my father tried to make a go of it um as a physician in israel and uh, at that time, being a physician in Israel was a real mess and very political and not very satisfactory in terms of practicing uh to the top of your medical capacities um and he was uh frustrated uh uh by it um but my mother had never been to israel never been out of the country and uh loved it and she just uh you know it was a frontier country at that time there was no tv no telephones except in a few stores and you had to go down to the store to make a telephone call um but and she loved it she just found it hugely uh invigorating liberating that sort of frontier spirit um you know, very, very, it was very small. I mean, Tel Aviv at that time was a tiny, tiny town and everyone knew everyone else. And she, she, uh, she loved that. And she also loved the outdoor cafe culture that was very Mediterranean at that time.
0: And you said, um, and, and she was very sort of tall and exotic looking and um, to to the Israelis. Uh...
1: Yeah, she was a very, you know, she's a large woman, about five nine, five ten, And um, yeah, I think, again, she captivated a lot of people's imagination.
0: So I only have a couple more questions for you because I know you have. That's all. <laughs> Don't you have to go?
1: Yes, I do. I have another call. Um, yeah.
0: What does your mom say now about the Black Lives Matter movement? And you must have conversations with her about it.
1: Well, uh, it's a little hard to have conversations. She's hard of hearing and have, having a full conversation. She is... Um. You know, she's very, uh, I think, uh, sort of energized by it. She's, you know, she thinks they're pushing for the right thing. Um, and I think it, it you know, it, it's reminiscent to her. And I think somewhat frustrating that she didn't also, uh, um, you know, wasn't able to, you know, finish it all off. So,
0: you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is get to the Get people to talk about, speculate on what it is about their mother that made them who they are.
1: Um, so I think what what is you know what is important to us. Uh, first of all, I think all of us have a, a, a deep sense of duty, um, a deep sense of hard work, um, a deep sense of justice. I I would say that um, uh, you know we all we don't follow the crowd so if it something's conventional or the accepted opinion we don't you know that's not what we norm on uh we tend to norm well if that's a conventional opinion somehow it's got to be wrong and let's figure out what the right answer is so i think that's very uh very much something my mom put in our head you know you don't follow whatever people are saying you think th- think it through on the basis of the principles that you have and uh, you come to your own conclusion. And if other people disagree with you, so other people, they're wrong and, and you stick to your guns. So I think those were things that she definitely gave us that have been very important.
0: Zeke Emanuel, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me about your mom.
1: It's a pleasure and I'm sure my mom would be happy to hear that we're talking about her.
0: And that's it this week for Our Mothers, Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry, and Paula Mangin is our artist in residence. I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Have a great week, and stay safe.